Okay, this is an exciting episode, I think. Even though we're talking about skin contact devices, we made a new friend. Yes, we made a new friend, and this guidance is kind of a, I don't know, somewhat of a breakthrough in terms of not having to do some testing for once. Instead of, a lot of times we get on and we talk about stuff that you need to test for, how you're going to test. In this case, there's a strategy where you don't have to test. Right. Potentially an easier path. So yeah, we're going to talk about in today's episode, the new, as of today's recording, FDA draft guidance for intact skin contacting devices and the biocompatibility approach for that. And our new friend is Allison Komiyama. She's a PhD in a certified regulatory affairs. Our friend, Ron Brown, who used to work at the FDA, introduced us to Allison. She also was at the FDA. So We love having the ex-FDA perspective on the episode today, and she shares a lot of great information that I learned some things for sure. So Allison is a former FDA reviewer, as I mentioned. She has started her own company, Acknowledge Regulatory Strategies. She serves clients who manufacture implantable and other patient contacting devices. While at the FDA, as a biologist and reviewer in the Office of Device Evaluation, she was a lead reviewer and consult on all types of applications, 510K, IDE, PMA. And her specialty definitely was biocompatibility requirements for implanted devices. She also researched neurotoxicity and systemic toxicity of medical devices in the Office of Science and Engineering Labs at the FDA to support ISO and ASTM standards. So had some really great experience while she was there. She left only because her husband got moved out to sunny California. So she shared with me that she was sad to leave the FDA. And she went into regulatory affairs at a couple of devices before she started her own company. She's worked with clients from all around the world, whose companies range from small two-people startups to large firms with over 40,000 employees. She's worked on lots of different devices, implants, to skin contact, to wearable technology. Just has a great experience that she shared with us here. So we really enjoyed this episode, and we hope you will too. Welcome to Biocompatibility, the first ever podcast focused on the biocompatibility of medical devices. NAMSA is happy to bring Biocompatibility to you, where each episode features leading industry experts and their discussions on biocompatibility challenges. Be sure to visit www.namsa.com for more information and to access all podcasts and transcripts. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Welcome to our new episode of Biocompatibility this week. Don, we have a new friend and we're calling her a friend, even though she barely knows us. We're friends. I don't think she's committed that far yet. <laughs> we'll see at the end of this. <laughs> we decide if you come on, if you agree to say yes, then you're a friend. So we are grateful to have Allison. And Allison, make sure I say your last name correctly. Komiyama. Komiyama? Yeah, got it. I was right. I won't make you try to say mine because (laughs) that's not fair. So we're happy to have Allison with us. A good friend of ours hooked us up with Allison as a good guest for us today. So we're super grateful for that. And we are talking biocompatibility of intact skin. Woohoo. Not normally an exciting topic. Let me check my (laughs) calls. I think it's riveting. Riveting. Yeah, when this guidance came out, I forwarded it to 20 of my best friends and clients. Yep. And I just said, woohoo, look at this. This 
this is really, really exciting. So I that think- is absolutely what makes it riveting. We've got something riveting to talk about with these types of devices. So what we're referring to is the FDA's draft guidance that they issued on October 15th, select updates for biocompatibility of certain devices in contact with intact skin. It's a draft guidance, so it's out there now for comment. And it always says this is for comment purposes only, not for implementation. But we're going to talk a little bit about that as well, as history doesn't always show that that's the case. So, Don, you want to give us an overview of what the FDA is basically telling us here? Sure. Yeah, basically, as the title implies, this thing only addresses devices that contact intact skin. And it's meant basically as an update to their biocompatibility guidance, which is referred to in the guidance as the 2016 biocompatibility guidance. But there's a 2020 2020 biocompatibility (laughs) guidance. But anyways, so yeah, as it points out, it will essentially update a couple sections in that biocompatibility guidance from the FDA. And then as it goes through, again, talks about the background of why they issuing this clarification, primarily from a kind of a risk-based approach, which is what we're supposed to be following in terms of biocompatibility evaluations based on part one. You know, they kind of came to the realization that there might be some unnecessary testing going on in some cases where people are just running out and testing things that have probably been, don't really need to be tested. And I think that's one of the key aspects that they drive home in this document. And you don't want to get it too excited because there is a list of materials that are covered and list of materials that are not covered by this guidance. So they discuss that or present that as well. Yeah, and I think an interesting point there is their mention of basically we spend a lot of time and resources reviewing these same three tests for basically the same materials over and over again. And so I kind of see this as certainly an FDA move to help them with their resources. So we're going to be doing with ASCA in the future here, but I was in, you know, having been a reviewer, I can imagine how many times you looked at cytosynthesization and irritation reports for devices that probably use the same material over and over again. Right. The long history of safe use, right, is what they always say. I echo your sentiment of FDA uses a lot of resources, not just to review the tests themselves, but also they mentioned on page two of the guidance document that they expend a lot of resources to obtain sufficient rationale and justifications. And I think that might be even harder than reviewing test reports. It's often easy to go through a cytosensitization irritation report and say, pass, pass, pass. It's way harder when a company is trying to leave this story of long history of use, let's say for organic cotton, be worn on the person's intact skin. And FDA is just like, oh my gosh, the fact that we are having to write AI or deficiency, additional information or deficiency letters asking for these justifications, let's give industry some guidance here on what we're we're thinking is going to be acceptable. And I think this is, as I said, it's in line with their least burdensome approach. And it also is pretty well in line with the three R's, right? The reduce, refine and replace animal testing, which, you know, I understand animal testing is necessary. It's absolutely, you know, to make sure devices are safe in many cases. But when you're looking at some of these materials, that's what I said. It was very exciting when we saw this guidance document because we all kind of felt like, oh, this is a long time coming. So... Yeah, for sure. 
And, you know, Don, having been in a situation where customer would come to us often and say, look, this is just going on the skin. We've used it a hundred times. Do we really have to do the biocomp? We know how hard it is to write a rationale for sensitization, for example. You don't go out and find a lot of literature on cotton, right? That it's not a sensitizer. Yeah, in some cases, like your weight of evidence is all the information that you don't find because nobody cares about it. Lack, lack of evidence then denotes no hazard, I guess. So yeah, it's, it's kind of frustrating and you spend more time, even from our side as well, you know, a manufacturer side, consulting side, trying to put together the story to convince a reviewer that, look, this doesn't matter. It's just going on skin. And it's kind of interesting. <laughs> this is FDA specific stuff that we're talking about in terms of this guidance. But in ISO 10993, Dash one 2018 clause 5.2.2a, there's that little interesting note that talks about for skin contacting devices made of basically materials that are used in consumer products for the biocompatibility evaluation is likely not needed or something to that effect. And just as Allison had said that she was excited to see this come from the FDA, likewise, I've had customers get really excited about that little note. And I said 1093 part one when that new version of that standard came out because it gave them something to refer to to say, look, this document is telling me, the standard's telling me that in this situation, based on what I know about this material, I don't have to do anything besides prove that it's used, it's common, which I think in both cases, I think that's still going to have some sticking points. You're still going to have to demonstrate the material right. in some way, shape, or form and how you know that it's a commonly used material, even if it might seem obvious. Right. Yes, this, this is definitely just a, yeah. <laughs> a blank check of like, oh, you nope. can forward and do it all. Yeah, I mean... No get-out-of-jail-free card here, for sure. <laughs> they did, they did make it clear what you're going to need to do. But I think at least having this guidance, what is it that we need to do? How do we help FDA understand the safety of the device and, and the materials of the device? Because the FDA always says we don't approve materials. We want testing right. on final finished device, you know, and right. this at least gives us what are the things that FDA is looking for? What should we have in our quality system documentation? Because at the end of the day, it's in your best interest to have a safe biocompatible device on your patients. I've seen a few cases where manufacturers think of consumer products. There was one very famous example of a wearable pedometer that shall remain unnamed that was causing horrible skin reactions on people and wasn't a medical device. So they didn't have to do all this testing. And so that was a very public display for them to show that, hey, we screwed up. We need to actually change our manufacturing. We need to change our materials to make sure it's not causing I think it was irritation. They had sort of red skin roundometer. I got one of those situations happening actually now. I've worn the same brand of running watch for years. My husband got me a new one last year for Christmas. And every time I wear it in one spot of my wrist, I get an irritation. And I'm like, you know, I've cleaned it. I've alcohol swapped it. Anyway, so my skin's weird. So you are an example so. of sensitivity <laughs> right there. I am. I am. It appears to be. Maybe it's the white. This one's white. The other one was black. I don't know. Maybe um, right there. Yeah. I won't go there. I won't go there. <laughs> I started chuckling a little bit, Don, of thinking how maybe now you will never have to write another cyto justification for Lycra, failing cytotoxicity. Yeah, uh, well, you know, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> maybe. 
You know, if somebody calls it anyway. spandex and that like roughs, it might confuse somebody. It's oh, true. not on the list. <laughs> it's not on the list. Speaking of, okay, so let's talk about Same what thing. devices are all eligible. It's all good. Right. We know low contact, low impact skin contact. Yeah. So low risk devices. Like, like what? I'm going to use my normal blood pressure. It's yeah. a given. The nice thing also in this guidance, it's not just for limited contact, right? It's for prolonged and long-term. So that's oh, true, true. Things that go 24 yep. to 30 days, 24 hours to 30 days, and also things over 30 days. You know, it really isn't for breached or compromised skin. So they make that very clear, right? If you have a wound and it's something going on top of a wound, you're looking at doing additional testing or providing those justifications as we talked about earlier. But you're right, it's for these. It actually might not be just for low-risk devices. I see a lot of moderate to high risk devices that have okay. intact skin, right? It's contact with intact skin. There's some pediatric devices that we're working on that sure. are class two and they use patient, con- you know, they're not neonates. That's another thing that they stipulate. Sure, that's a, if there's we'll, neonate, get to, we'll get to those exceptions. We'll to yeah, 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 sure. You know, for some of these skin contacting device on this list, you're looking good for not having to do all sorts of additional testing. Right. So, I'm thinking, I mean, I'm seriously drawing a blank at other examples. There's like a ton of wearables that like... Wearables, right? They have neurostimulators up against the skin. The harnesses. Think about sleep apnea machines. The straps. The head straps and all the stuff. Not the mask, obviously. Different story. Right. Different set of standards. Different podcast episode. (laughs) Everything else. And they're done that. (laughs) That's on skin. I mean, so there's all those things as well. And I'm pretty sure that all those materials are on the list that most of those things are made out of. So So let's talk about the list. Yeah. Let's talk about the list of the materials. So I see I had them added up 17 polymers and four fabrics. It doesn't seem like a lot, but I'm guessing it's pretty all-encompassing for these types of devices. Yeah. No, and you look at certain poly materials, HDPE, when you're looking at silicone even, there's a lot of different durabilities of silicone. So they've kept it very generic, which is great. I think there's going to be some question if there's additives to these materials, you know, what's... Right. Um, and yeah. if that additive is not on the list, I think it just additional justification will be necessary. But yeah, it was great to see this list. And it's not necessarily final. The nice piece is that they are going to consider... And I think that's why it's so important to provide comments, the guidance documents when these are released is, you know, if there's something on there that your device has that you believe should be on this list, let FDA know. Right. Yeah. So comments are open until it's 60 days. So I think it's December 15th. I feel like the ASCA last year, we had that right before Christmas deadline as well. I remember us getting our comments together right before Christmas. So comments are due within 60 days. Also, just want to make note. So if you're listening and you haven't seen the guidance yet and you want to get some additional information on it, you can go to www.namsa.com slash skin. And that'll take you right to a blog post that we have on it, as well as a direct link to the guidance. You can also Google it. It comes up easy that way. But if you want to read a blog, um, we have one of those as well. So um, let's talk about some of the measures in place. So you have to have these certain materials. They have to be on the list. Questionable about additives, right? That's kind of an unknown right now. But the other types of things that they talk about as far as the type of regulatory submission, 
as well as the quality system. I don't know, Allison, do you want to talk about the types of submissions maybe? Sure. So they pretty much listed all the different pre-market submissions. And that's why, as I said, it's not just for low-risk devices because the first thing they list is PMAs. So they have PMAs, uh, HDEs, IDEs, 510Ks, and de novo requests. So it's really every type of pre-market submission. If you have a pre-market submission that you're going to submit and it has a device or a component that is intact skin contacting, Here's the stuff that they want. You know, they want a list of materials used to fabricate the device with direct or indirect contact with skin. They want a statement that the list of materials have a documented history of safe use. So that's where you're going to have to do a little digging and do some research. All the things they've listed, I think there's a wealth of information online or with other devices. Or the, you know, honestly, I often will go back to the suppliers and the contract manufacturers. If they use that component or they use that material for another device, or another manufacturer, that can actually be very beneficial, right? And if they're willing to share that information with you, that's the other piece. Class six testing might become useful. That's true. That is true. (laughs) (laughs) We meet up class six testing all the time. Basically, it's not not useful anymore, but it may become useful. There might have some... We might be a surge. (laughs) (laughs) Please let there not be a surge. (laughs) It's a class six testing. Anyway, sorry. I don't help, but you know, I digress. And really the last thing is a statement that confirms none of the above listed exclusions apply. So the guidance document does have a list of exclusions, you know, in table one. And it talks about if it has a fluid or a cream, if it has polymerizing materials, right? If there's some sort of in situ polymerizing material that's used or hydrogels, you know, hydrogels are known to be very cytotoxic. So you have to provide, might have to provide testing or additional justification. So again, going through the list in table one, making sure that you don't meet any of those exclusions. And then in your 510k, let's say you have a statement confirming that that is the case. So, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Here's what we want. I think the other piece is really the quality system component, as you mentioned. Sure. And there is a statement on page six and seven of the guidance document that really says exactly what they want you to say. They have something similar in the guidance document, you know, the biocompatibility guidance document for when you can say our device is identical in formulation processing manufacturing, there's a whole list that they want you to say. We've even had reviewers send that statement to us and say, please, can you just put this in your response yeah. letter back to us and change up the words for your device or materials? I was like, sure, we can sure. absolutely say that, especially if you own your own predicate. Let's say you're doing a 510K and the predicate is sure. your own. It's an easy statement to include. But yeah, really mentioning a lot of the 21 CFR, right? That you have documented in your device master record that biocomp testing or rationale has been provided there. So this is, I guess we're kind of seeing also the results of the reorganization that happened at FDA, right? The FDA reorg and the shift really to the Office of Product Evaluation and Quality because they've sort of brought these offices together, smooshed them together. And the reviewers, you know, the nice thing, they have office of compliance folks and post-market people that are now really doing pre-market review. And also the pre-market folks are being introduced to more on the post-market side, which I feel like a lot of reviewers didn't have that exposure previously. And I feel like the guidance documents are a reflection of that. Like we are really seeing a lot of this, what historically might have been a pre-market request being put into the quality system and potentially for inspectors to look at or for you embraced by your quality system. Again, this is a shift that we're seeing at FDA and I commend the Biocomp and Jen Goods group. I know she's you know been very involved in this guidance document as well. So 
Sure. So I noticed a couple of things and there's some additional discussion if you have these types of things. And they mentioned the QSUB process, although I think we just had a blog a few days ago about how backed up the QSUB process is right now. So don't expect to get in. So that could be a little bit of a challenge. But you mentioned this earlier, and Don, we certainly have to take this into tox assessments. They mentioned no neonates, nothing that's going to go on a neonate. The inclusion does not say it's adults only, but the exclusion says no neonates or pregnant women, right? So anything that could be on a pregnant woman. So those two were interesting exclusions. I understand that, I guess to some extent, I understand them both. It seems like an interesting call out to me. Yeah, I want to clarify. They're not in the exclusion list, but they are in the recommend additional discussion on this. So I think they see the benefit, especially for pregnant women. had a kid not too long ago. And I mean, all the straps and the things that they're wrapping on you, like, yeah, I want to make sure those things aren't leaching toxins and (laughs) going to me and the baby. So I get it. I feel like these are usually more vulnerable populations. You know, neonates especially, they are so fragile. Their skin absorbs way easier than even babies that are full term. I think this was wise of FDA to say, here are the things that we're aware of and we want a little more information on. And so come talk to us about it in the precept process. I agree with you that right now it is wild, you know, thanks coronavirus or no thanks coronavirus, um, because a lot of the Q-subs have been canceled. They are canceling certain offices at FDA are canceling precepts even before they hit a review cycle. So wow. you can see like in one hand, they're saying, come to us with a Q-sub, so we'll review it. And then you might have the opposite happen. You submit the Q-sub so you can get some feedback about the biocomp. And it just gets booted out. I would say in that instance, probably understanding if you have any relationship with the biocomp folks within that office at FDA, or if you call the Division of Industry and Consumer Education or DICE, they can maybe figure out how to point you in the right direction just to at least get those questions answered because otherwise your precept might not get reviewed. That's a great suggestion. Don, what do you think about the exceptions that they list in that table as far as adverse I think adverse clinical findings is interesting. (laughs) We know how hard it is to find a clinical finding for sensitization. Are we going to have to change clinical protocols for these types of devices and look for sensitization? Or at least like what you're putting in your post-market surveillance. I mean, there's that, that mention as well in here in terms of recommendations for labeling as a precautionary statement. I guess, help guide users or caretakers as it's rewarded. You know, caretakers should assess patients for adverse reactions on the skin where the device has contact for redness, swelling, irritation, sensitization. They use delayed type hype, type 4 hypersensitivity. People are going to be Googling that to figure out what in the world that is because it's sitting on the table. But anyways, so yeah, I think it may give people, our manufacturers of devices, another way or maybe more scrutiny that they place on like post-market surveillance type information, complaints, and that sort of thing. In this context, to show in compliance with this, due diligence that they're actually following up and that by getting a product on the market that has skin contact, you did definitely not miss something in terms of a potential risk to the end user, patient, what have you. So yeah, I guess the other thing that just looking at in terms of like their exclusion characteristics they give the examples of exclusions of bulk materials, and they list out titanium, stainless steel, nitinol, and gold. And right. you know, there's no mention of aluminum anywhere. So I don't know where that falls. I mean, for I'm certainly thankful that this 
guidance is out there in draft right now. But I'm just kind of wondering to myself, titanium and stainless steel, bold. I could see nitinol. I understand the point there. The other ones, besides manufacturing processes that might leave a residue behind, right. but that could be said for any of the fabrics too. There's a lot of true. chemicals that go on fabrics just to get them made. And if you don't clean them right, after you put them together, some of those chemicals aren't the friendliest thing either, especially when it comes down to testing. They show up in things like cyto and even irritation. But regardless, I, I wonder about things like that. I wonder about a lot of things, but some of them really <laughs> some not. Some we don't need to know. Yep. You know, <laughs> synthetic polymers, they list all the individual materials. I wonder about copolymer. The ABS is on the list, polycarbonate's on the list. What if I have a copolymer made of polycarbonate and ABS? Am I on the list? No, I think that's a good, that would be a good argument. Yeah, I think adding that to the the comments in response to this, I agree with you with the titanium stainless steel. There's, I mean, there's not a lot of devices that have those particular metals that are, but the thing that made me a little nervous was the EG, right? EG meaning, for example, so it's like, oh gosh, what else is on that list? Or what else can reviewers come up with in their mind that say, well, that's not on the list. And it's, we are now considering that a novel material. Yeah, I feel like some additional clarification around that or maybe a little more guidance from FDA would benefit industry and also the reviewers, right? That are going to be reviewing sure. devices to give them. As it always says, this is not just for FDA guidance for industry. This is an FDA guidance for the agency and for industry. So Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, because I, I was just thinking about a device that I'm reviewing right now and it already went into the FDA, but it's got a bunch of questions from a notified body. But I just look back at that device. It's got stainless steel in it. It's got aluminum in it. It's completely skin contact. And if I look at all the polymers, I have all those covered except for copolymers. I have a couple of copolymers that aren't covered. And then I got metals as well. Mm-hmm. So like, I'm kind of caught. I still don't think that there's anything to be concerned about in terms of the safety of that device and its use. But if I look at this guidance now, I would be left wondering... Can I apply everything here? Or am I going to have to do cytosensitization irritation because I have metals, some copolymers that aren't necessarily defined in the list, even though all the individual polymers are? So, yeah, I think, you know, hopefully through the review process and the updates to it, we can get the clarity to those types of things so that we can use it as effectively as we can for the submission of these types of devices. Yeah. So, in talking, thinking about that, as far as like, Implementation. I mean, I think, Allison, you might have mentioned that you are already pointing to this document on some submissions. It, of course, says it's not for implementation, but we have historically seen that we have been able to cite draft guidances. And, like, I mean, the reprocessing guidance was in draft for like six years, (laughs) and it was governing everything for six years as a draft. So, implementation now, customers start looking at this going, hey, I think I'm okay. I don't need to do CSI for this product. Right. I think you nailed it on the head. There's guidance is FDA's current thinking, right? And even if it's draft, we've had many reviewers say, well, there's a new draft guidance document. Look at that. I think of the cybersecurity guidance documents. There's been draft out about that. And a lot of the reviewers are relying on the most recent version, even though other reviewers are saying, no, we're only sticking to the final one. So it kind of depends on the group at FDA and on the reviewer and whether it trained up on the new draft guidances and that. I would say don't ignore it. Hopefully we'll benefit not only industry, 
but also FDA, because it's really right. just giving the reviewers more power to understand what they should be asking. It really helps them not just blindly get justifications and try to, you know, ask for additional justification when it's like, oh my gosh, am I really asking for all this testing for something that in my heart I know is probably fine, but I know I need to follow the 10993-1 guidance. Right. So I think use it if your device absolutely has an intact or touches intact skin, but also don't just rely on it to be like, well, I get, you know, this is the get out, as you said, the get out of jail free card. You know, this is, you still need to think about your materials. You still need to have a thoughtful discussion about what is the risk? What are the risks of the materials? And how have you mitigated those risks? I think that's always the most important thing for pre-market submissions. Yeah. I'm going to use it in my response back to the notified body. A further example of... Give it a shot. You know, risk yeah. <laughs> level. It's like, look... Right. FDA's doing this, so we can't be talking too far outside the box here. Anyways. We definitely see them follow FDA's lead on multiple things. So I think, yeah, I would certainly be trying to use it in a defense as well. So I think the last thing I just want to clarify, so information needed. So I'm no longer submitting this packet of test reports, but it doesn't mean I don't have some really specific information needed in my submission. So we talked about, obviously, quality system. Everything we need to do there has to be documented. We have to be in at a final finished state where we know we're not manipulating this. Statement of history of use, which I think it's probably more than a statement. It's probably a discussion. No exclusion. So you have to look through all the exclusions, make sure you don't have those. And we talked about no known clinical irritation or sensitization in clinicals. And then it says documented device master record that all risks were addressed in detailed rationale. I don't know that I'm familiar with that device master record. Is that specific to the standard or is it something that I've not known about all along? Just because I'm not a regulatory person necessarily. No, it's one of those D acronyms for right. system folks, right? The DHS, okay. DMR. Oh, it's a quality system document. People that makes sense. Exactly. I so usually I just nod off. Unquote. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a master yeah, specific device. So yeah, you just want to make sure that it is documented in your DMR. Okay. And they've listed, I mean, the nice thing is they've really listed where in the CFR you can find it. So they have yep. six bullet points of what you need to be, how you need to be considering your material or your device as a whole. Excellent. I feel like the, <laughs> all of that stuff, I'm not, I usually say I'm not a quality consultant. I mean, not, or at least not that kind. At <laughs> least stick to regulatory. But, you know, again, I think this really, again, another example of how FDA is really, or at least the FDA headquarters and the OPEC, uh, the Office of Product Evaluation and Quality, is really looking at how can we put some of this, the onus on your quality system or a lot of the work into your quality system. You see it with the efforts for case for quality. Like they are really trying to say, it's in your best interest industry to have a solid quality system and to think about all these things ahead of time so that you don't run into issues. And we don't, at FDA, then we don't have to be worrying about people breaking out in skin rashes because of your device. So, right. Made me think about all those class one devices that don't have to submit for yes. 510K. So I'm able to go out and sell my class one device, some class twos. Just by justifying all this stuff myself within my quality system, I may have to do biocomp. I may be justifying it this way. It kind of reminds me of that approach like, okay, we're going to give you some trust here 
to do the right thing. And we're going to give you some options. What's anything scary about this, Don? Like anything scary about this? Besides the discussions that, besides the back and forth, you may have arguing the point when it might've been just easier to do the cytosensitization irritation. But as far as like safety wise. I mean, as long as, I'd say it doesn't scare me from that perspective, as long as people are doing an honestly good job at actually evaluating their product for safety and not just, like we've been saying, not just kind of glossing it over because FDA put this guidance out there, especially for like class one exempts. I mean, I've seen some sloppy documentation of safety, almost to the point where it becomes a little scary. There's some stories that just you're like, I understand that the level of risk is really low here, but just what you're doing in the background doesn't seem to kind of fit the bill in my mind. So I think this actually maybe would help that situation because it makes sure that people understand, look, you still have to document this system well, even for those types of devices. Oh, good points. And maybe that's a little bit more reassurance to kind of de-risk or make it less scary um, than more scary from that perspective. But yeah, I mean, if we look at the materials, I think most would say that in general, those materials don't really present themselves as a high-risk type of thing just to making sure that you have everything documented to really put your dot your I's, cross your T's so that everything's addressed as it needs to be in your files. Sure. Allison, what about you? Anything anything scary about this? Nothing super scary. I would say you brought up earlier how long it can take FDA to finalize the guidance document. And I think it's really, as you guys even noted, they point to the 2016 <laughs> you know, ISO 1093 guidance at FDA. So it actually takes a very long time for guidance documents to work their way through FDA. Unless you're a COVID guidance document, those, I mean, it's been an amazing year to watch FDA and they've hustled. I mean, they are working their tails off over there to get guidance out there that's relevant and that's helping people. I think what's scary to me maybe is if this either gets withdrawn or never gets implemented and it kind of disappears. And there's always a risk to that. I'm fine with it staying draft. I'd love to have some of the clarity that we've mentioned in the exclusion table and some of the comments that were made. But yeah, I'd hate to see this taken away. I guess that's my best, the scariest piece. That's a good point. That's a really good point. All right. So I think we've covered kind of all the points that I had looked at covering. Did you guys have any other... Anything I skipped over here that we think is important we need to point out? No, I think not. It's time for a game. Yeah, I'm ready for the game. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Okay, so listeners, if you're maybe not listened to us before, most of the time, almost every episode, I think we've had maybe two or three exceptions. At the end of an episode, we all play a game of two truths and a lie. And what this is, is we've all got a list that we've created of two truths and one lie around working and biocompatibility or in this realm, mine creep a little bit outside of biocompatibility sometimes just because I'm not, that's not my full-time gig. But anyway, and so we say them and then the other two get to guess which one they think is a lie. So we're trying to trick people. So who would like to go first? I'm always the guinea pig to go first, just to kind of, All right. yeah. Nice so. guinea pig reference, by the way. <laughs> okay, Don, what do you got? <laughs> yeah, I'm reading over the one here and I'm not, you know, I could, yeah, anyways. So first one, I've successfully argued for not testing a skin contacting device prior to this guidance being issued. Pretty simple. If it was not for this guy, number two, if it was not for this guidance, when asked, 
I would suggest, in most cases, cytosensitization irritation for a skin contacting device being submitted to the FDA. We'll say in the past. And the third one, even with this guidance, I would recommend cytotoxicity testing for a skin contacting device. Oh, I have mine, I think. Jeopardy song playing in the background. And I'm not going to attempt on it. Really bad. Rest in peace, Alex Trebek. I'm guessing three is the I'm going to guess three as well. Bingo. You're both correct. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Please don't do Cyto if you're following this guidance. Please. Right. Because you will find out. (laughs) You could open up. Yeah. (laughs) Don't pass Cyto. So... (laughs) Anyways. That's a great one, Don. Actually, I'm, that was a really good lie to give that lesson. A lesson and a lie all at the same time. <laughs> There's some method to my madness on some days. Some days, not so much. <laughs> other days, yeah. All right. Allison, you want to go next? No, please. I have to go last. Okay. Okay. <laughs> all right. So mine, mine are uh, lots of fun. Number one, blood pressure cuff is my favorite example of skin contacting devices. Number two... When I first heard CSI the first time, I asked them which city was their favorite. And the last one, an FDA person actually taught me what CSI was. You got it? I think I got it. Do you have a guess, Allison? Let's say two, B. I can't remember if it was A or B. Two. Two. What was two? Two. What was two? The, yes, the, the, which episode is your favorite? Yeah. Which city is your favorite? Yeah. Okay. That, I did not ask them that out loud, but I did have that thought. Like, oh, I wonder which one we're talking about. Until I realized they were talking about cytosensitization irritation. So, which, by the way, then I've never called it anything but CSI since then, because I love that term. So, all right, Allison, what you got for us? All right. I want to give you some, I've tied mine all to my work at FDA. Okay. All right. I've worked in a super secret bunker basement lab at FDA. My favorite person who's recently left FDA is uh, Ron Brown. And I met the band Offspring with a bunch of FDA reviewers when I was hanging out with them. Mm. All very, very plausible things. <laughs> Sorry, they're, um, bio, they're not very bio That's okay. You were at the FDA and you worked in biocom. So yes. Oh, gosh. Oh, very plausible. I don't, uh, mm, she might be tricking us with the band name. It could have been a different band. Uh, no, I'm going to say number one's the lie. Seems, Even though I know there's such a thing. I'm going to say number one's a lie. I was going to go with number one, too, because it's a super top secret. Is there such a thing? Yeah, I don't know. But... <laughs> If there was, we know about it now. No, no, it's very, you, you should have gone with number three. I actually met oh. Everclear with a bunch of DA reviewers. We were even better at the conference. But I have worked at a super secret bunker basement at FDA. It's underground at the Office of Science and Engineering. I've heard about that. Yeah. Yes. My one of my former boss and one of my favorite people of all time is Ron Brown, and who you know, and yeah. he's been on this podcast. Yeah, well. and we're grateful that he introduced <laughs> you to us. So. Oh, that's a lot of fun. He'll, hopefully he'll listen and he can see that you gave him a good shout out. <laughs> well, Allison, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us, giving us your experience and expertise. I've had a lot of fun and we'll have to come up with another topic and you can join us again. I'd love to. Yeah. And I do consider you both friends. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we made it through. Find me on LinkedIn. Actually, I think I already found you on LinkedIn. 
Jackson was interconnected. <laughs> well, thanks so much for having me on. This is a pleasure. And I'm so always happy to talk about biocompatibility near and dear to my heart. Good. Yeah, there's about five of us that feel that way in the world. We're glad you're one of us. <laughs> now, she said she forwarded this to 20 friends. So she has plenty of that like biocomp as much. We've just tripled our listeners. <laughs> there we go. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy biocompatibility, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast store. For free resources and material, remember to visit www.namsa.com slash resources slash podcast.